we don't need new knowledge. We need to apply what we already know. That was Jim Gerrish, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. G'day, I'm your host, Charlie Arnott, and in this podcast series, I'll be uncovering the world of regenerative agriculture, its people, practices, and principles, and empowering you to apply their learnings and experience to your business and life. I'm an eighth-generational Australian farmer who transitioned my family farm from industrial methods to holistic regenerative practices. Join me as I dive deep into the regenerative journeys of other farmers, chefs, health practitioners, and anyone else who's up for a yarn, and find out why and how they transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with Charlie Arnott. G'day. Welcome to this episode. Jim is from the United States and what a font of information. I was expecting to sort of stay mainly in the regenerative ag space, talking about, uh, I guess, food production and, and, and grazing and um, some sort of some business angles there. But we spend a lot of time, actually, um, understandably and appropriately speaking about human health and the the connection that um, we have with with our soil through our food and, and our health being directly related to the the state and the condition and the health uh, of that soil. We also touched on um, some really interesting uh, sort of background on the grain-fed beef industry and, and actually chemical ag, the the, um, the military origins of chemical ag. You know, he had some fast, fantastic quotes. I have to say, um, he's Jim's got a very interesting addiction, and I'm sure he'll be very interested to hear about. Uh, we talk about um, pharmaceuticals um, and sort of agricultural pharmaceuticals and the effect on human health. And so um, I trust you'll enjoy this one. And I also, a um, uh, big shout out again to Landcare Australia for their um, very great, very, very thankful um, support um, for this podcast. And enjoy my interview with Jim Gerrish. Jim Gerrish, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on, on our show, The Regenerative Journey. Um, we're sitting here in at a cottage at Wilmot, having had a, a field day put on by Maya Grazing. Um, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Charlie. Jim, um, tell me, uh, just to give people a bit of context, um, what were you, uh, what, what's been your main sort of, I guess, your job here today as a presenter, um, uh, uh, talking at the Maya Grazing uh, field day here. Did you have a job? Did you have a job? <laughs> did, 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 did I have a job? <laughs> I, I had a couple of topics to cover. Yep. Um, one of them, what I started with this morning, which actually wasn't the topic that they had asked me to address, but because so many questions had come up over the last couple of days, I just made that arbitrary decision. Hell, I'll talk about something else. You switched it. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I talked about the, the basis of subdividing pasture, why we do it. And I have, I have a little different twist. Most people, when they think about splitting up pastures, it's about the space. You make bigger pastures into smaller pastures. My view is that we create smaller and smaller increments of time. Because in my view, my evolving view over the last 40 years is that time management is actually the more critical piece of grazing management than what spatial management is. So that was the first topic I covered. And then the other one was uh, seven things I've learned in the last 40 years. And I could have done 11 things, 19 things, but yeah, 
you get it down to seven. And so it's kind of seven key points about grazing management and uh, the broad context of what we're trying to accomplish. Jim, um, I missed that bit. I have to say I was getting set up here doing a podcast with someone else. So right. I'm going to get back to that one. Tell me, Jim, um, where did you... Where did your regenerative journey start, do you think? I mean, in terms of, you know, I guess the, the, the career path you're now on, I know that you were a trained agronomist um, and cropping agronomist was, was your background, I understand. And then that sort of morphed into, um, I guess, interestingly enough, uh, advising one of your roles is advising um, graziers um, how to... How to um, how to grow more grass essentially right i i really wasn't a cropping uh, agronomist i was always a pasture agronomist okay and i i grew up a uh, very conventional crop farmer in illinois and i always say well i got over that <laughs> what um, what what got you over that all right so when you grow up a farmer uh there's certain things that you enjoy like the the aroma of fresh turned earth, plowed ground. And then at some point, and I don't remember exactly when it was that I came to learn that that aroma that I loved so much is uh, the smell of the earth dying because tillage destroys microbial life in the soil. And it's when you till the ground and disturb the uh, established microbial network that you get that release of that great aroma so suddenly it didn't seem like a sane thing to do. And so uh, crop farming went by the wayside. Um, I've never been a fan in, in my adult life, a fan of uh, using herbicides on weeds and pasture crops, anything like that. And so I was already moving away from um, the idea of chemical-based agriculture in by the mid to late 1980s, um, the, the, you know, what's really driving regenerative farming and ranching now is the increasing understanding of soil biology and its role in making everything work better in the soils. And that's um, really 21st century science. So I don't know when I first heard the term regenerative agriculture, but it was certainly wasn't in the 1980s, and I don't think in the 1990s. So sometime in the early 2000s, uh, that term started being used. Uh, but I would say my journey began sometime before the terminology came into common use. And In the mid-1990s, we started doing um, grass-fed beef research at the University of Missouri Research Station where I worked. And I also remember, I think in 1995, on our own farm, was the first time that we butchered a 100% grass-fed steer. And I hope, my God, I hope this is even fit to eat. And it turned out to be, you know, some of the best beef I'd ever eaten. And we, you know, got a little more skillful at it. And the animal genetics were a little different. And we just got better and better at it. And, and I came to the realization that um, we don't need feedlots. We just need people who have the grazing management skills to take a pasture and turn it into delightful beef. Jim, um, the origins of grain, 
grain feed. So that's I guess that's that's an alternative to a grass fed um, mm-hmm. animal. Tell us about the you know how do we get to the point of jamming all that grain into 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 cattle? Well, quite frankly, in the U.S., it, it's a post World War II phenomenon um, when the food production capacity of Europe was destroyed by war raging, you know, across that continent, um, that's when American farmers were first told, you got to feed the world. And so uh, in World War II and immediately post-World War II, uh, the U.S. really ramped up its grain production. And that was literally to try to feed the world. And then as the European farming scene and economy got back on its feet, suddenly we were sitting there in the U.S. with this huge, huge surplus of grain. And what are we going to do with that grain? Somebody came up with the idea of, hey, why don't we um, feed it to steers? Because hogs had always been fed some grain. Well, always is a strong word. Hogs had been fed grain for a long time to fatten them. And so why not steers? And that is the origins of the feedlot industry in the U.S. It was really just an avenue to get rid of excess grain post-World War II. It's not dissimilar to the um, how we came to be using so much chemical in agriculture. Oh, there isn't, you know, post-World War II. Yeah. Uh, phosphorus is the, or the superphosphate fertilizer, that's a byproduct of the weapons industry, ammonium nitrate, byproduct of the weapons industry. Um, some of the herbicides, and well, I should say insecticides, insecticides, some of them are derivatives of poisonous gases created in uh, World mm-hmm. War I. You know, and uh, so, yeah, there's a whole lot of the chemical industry that um, agricultural chemical industry that came uh, as an offshoot of World War of military uh, technology, and we didn't need the military applications. So let's make war on bugs. Let's make war on weeds. And there we found ourselves, you know, buried in pharmaceuticals. And at what point, Jim, did you think, I mean, I'll ask a question, was that part of your 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 farming journey or your involvement with agriculture? Was there um, a part in your career where that you were involved with um, uh, the use of you know those herbicides and those pesticides as a as a practice or as a um, advise in you know, an advisory role? In, in the research role in Missouri, yes, we did uh, fly control research with uh, insecticidal ear tags, uh, feed through larvicides. Um, we did parasite studies, um, you know, with uh, ivermectin, cydectin, you know, a lot of the common uh, dewormers. And yes, we did that. And I, I would say one of the things, what, something that really opened my eyes, we were also doing uh, mineral cycling research, looking at manure distribution um, based on animal travel distance to water, stock density, size and shape of paddock, stuff like that. And uh, so we have students doing these assessments and they started bringing in uh, numbers, you know, manure count numbers. And if you want to know how you do that, and by the way, in research, we don't call that a cow pie or manure pile. It's an SEE, which is a single excretory event 
because a cow, you know, can walk and string poop along or she can stand in it. And you have to be able to distinguish what's one single excretory event. It could be a, tr- it could be a trial. Yeah, it, 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 it could be trailed out for, you know, eight meters. There you go. There you go, there. folks. You know, you're learning all sorts of, stuff, all yeah. sorts of good stuff. So we, we were, and, and we would, we had pastures that were gridded out. And so the students would go out and count manure piles in a particular grid area. And they were starting to come in with numbers that just seemed excessive. Didn't make sense. So I went out and looked and saw that they were recounting piles from the previous grazing episode and said, why is this, why is this happening? Why do we have these fully intact manure piles out here? And this would probably have been around 1990. Um, And we had overlaid on that research a feed through larvicide study. Um, Within the university, within the research system, you really try to leverage your investment in research animals and research pastures to do multiple products. And, you know, you, you do it under the guise of interdisciplinary research and stuff. And so we were working with a parasitologist. No, not to, in that case, it was an entomologist, livestock entomologist, um, looking and he, so he was looking at the effect of these feed through larvicides. And lo and behold, we were completely sterilizing all of the insect activity out of those manure piles. And so they were, rather than disappearing, you know, over the one recovery period and largely being gone, say, in 30 to 40 days, they were persisting. And so I started looking at that, you know, marking piles and seeing when is this finally going to go away? And we had... uh, cow pies out there that lasted two to three years no. because no. of the feed through larvicide. So that was something that, you know, triggered in my mind. And th- this was before the research uh, that was showing ivermectin was uh, killing dung beetles. It was actually before that. It took me a little while to put two and two together. Um, and so sometime in the early to mid-90s, you know, I started realizing that we had a real problem with the, uh, the, the insecticides that we were using on the cattle, the deworming agencies that we had a non-target organism uh, problem. And then the Ivamec research started coming out and the list got bigger. And now we know that there's thousands of non-target organisms being uh, harmed in the soil environment and the plant canopy by these uh, various pharmaceuticals and that probably that early to mid nineties research that we were doing with entomologists and parasitologists uh, is really what started me thinking about the broader picture of what are we really doing here. And I sometimes say that. Uh, so I I occasionally get introduced as being a retired university professor. I'm not a retired university professor. I quit when I when I was um, uh, I had just turned forty seven. You know, tenured position and, you know, got a paycheck at the end of the month, whether I did anything or not. I realized that uh, we didn't even know what the questions were. And we do this research and we're generating these answers, answers that mean nothing in the real. uh, Of course, at that time we were using the S word, the sustainable word, that we didn't know the right questions to be asking 
to actually try to develop sustainable grazing practices. And then regenerative came along, and we were a long, long way from doing research that actually addressed questions that really mattered. And I, I have looked at a lot of the old grazing research in the uh, second presentation I did today. I finish it with a number of slides that just have some work, uh, quotes on them. And it's going through basically talking about the same principles of regenerative ranching that we do now, except it was written by James Anderson in Scotland in 1777. We don't need new knowledge. We need to apply what we already know. Jim, um, what are some of the questions we th you think we should be asking ourselves as either researchers or as farmers or as, as, as consumers? Are there sort of what have you what, what, what questions did you ask yourself? Okay, that, that's a good question. And we can even we can work this from way back soil biology or we can look at human health. Um, Let's do it all, Jim. I'm, I'm going to start from the human health Good. Yep. perspective. Um, uh, I'm, I'm generally, a, I'm a very healthy person, but I had uh, kind of bad knees for a while and hips, joints hurting. And that was when I was in my 40s. And I thought, man, if I feel like this at, you know, 42, what am I going to be like at 62? And... Um, you know, we started reading, and my wife, she had ulcerative colitis for 14 years, being treated in the conventional medical industry, basically getting worse. And finally, she went to see a naturopathic doctor who suggested that, you know, this is just, you know, food reactions. So she um, got a blood test to look at food allergens, and out of, out of 98 foods that they tested for, she was like negatively reacting to 68 of them. No one in the conventional medical industry, the gastroenterologist, ever suggested that diet had something to do with dysfunctional guts. So we went down the naturopathic path. Uh, she started eating according to what that uh, food allergen test suggested. And in two weeks, she was a whole lot better. In six months, she was fully recovered. And... Um, uh, so that has been uh, 11 years now. She had one minor colitis flare-up in that whole time, and that's because we were traveling and she was eating horrible food, which very often happens when you travel a lot. And, you know, she w just put her diet back where it needed to be, recovered from it. So that gave me a lot of – and then my knees, I, I quit eating some of those things, and my knee, everything about me got fine. And so we take the link between our health and our diet very seriously. And so then the next step that you look back on, uh, and we, we are very much focused on eating real food. So um, all of the meats that we eat, and we eat a lot of meat, we raise our own grass-fed beef, we barter for grass-fed lambs from a neighbor, one of our sons raised pasture pork and pasture chickens, we get it there, we hunt and eat wild game. So about the only thing, meat, that we eat out of the industrial system is bacon because even if you have a 400-pound pasture hog, um, 
you're going to run out of bacon in two months. <laughs> so we have to supplement our bacon addiction <laughs> through the, the industry. That's a, that's the sort of addiction you want, though, Jim, isn't it? A bacon, that's okay. Bacon addi- If you're going to have an addiction of anything, bacon. Yeah, bacon's, bacon's not bad. You're going to have to taste our bacon one day, Jim. Mm-hmm. It is, I don't know if you can take any of that back to the States. I'm not sure how to get it to you, but um, the people at Customs would probably steal it and eat it. Yeah, it, but I suppose it could be shipped. I don't know. So anyway, <laughs> and, and we, we eat... Uh, we completely eliminated processed foods from our diet. Uh, all of our fruits and vegetables are fresh, and it is just amazing how it changes your health. So then from that point, you look at how are we producing this food? Why is it that uh, some food is healthy and some is not? And so we are very solid believers in 100% uh, forage diet for ruminants, no grain in there the fatty acid profiles and we we keep finding you know more and more specific amino acids or fatty acid profiles that in the grass fed are just uh, at a healthier balance than what it is in the grain fed so we go there uh, we eat almost entirely uh, organic vegetables and fruits now just to get the potential contaminants out of the diet and we simply find that the cleaner food that we eat the healthier we are. So then that takes you from the standpoint of your plants and your livestock. How do we ensure that those are healthy and functional? And that takes you back to the soil. And, you know, to, to me, the sooner we get agricultural pharmaceuticals out of the food production system, the healthier everyone's going to become. And because we need to feed ourselves and uh, those around us, we have to make that soil healthy so we have healthy food so our families are healthy, and that brings you back to biological life in the soil. And so my regenerative journey uh, you know, travels from some research that said, hey, putting these pharmaceuticals in our cattle is doing something to mineral cycling and manure de- composition and things like that and then the, on the other end of the spectrum uh we had some health issues that we fixed through diet and so I, I i get i guess you could say my regenerative journey started in on two ends my personal health and my wife's personal health and then the realization that we were doing bad things to soil life with the pharmaceuticals that we were using and jim, here i am here you are happy yeah. and healthy yeah jim um that to me, as someone who um, I guess understands and has experienced, um, you know, parts of similar sort of journey, why do you think it's that 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 what 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 might sound to us as um, pretty common sense stuff and practical stuff? Um, why do you think it can be hard to understand or hard for some people to swallow or get their head around? And, and mm-hmm. you know, why is that? Do you think this is where I'm going to come across as a conspiracy theorist? Do it. All right. Uh, an acronym that I used, that, that I actually coined it. I don't know. It's in it's certain sectors it's used now. It's the GAMPI, G-A-M-P-I. G-A-M-P-I. That's the Government Agricultural Medical Pharmaceutical Industrial Complex. And that is the enemy of the health of the people. That is the enemy of health of the soil. Um the revolving door between 
the pharmaceutical and chemical industries and government oversight agencies, uh, the fact that medical schools are largely funded by the pharmaceutical industry and it is in their best interest to teach doctors only how to give drugs and you know cut people. Uh, the worst place to go to for advice on health and well-being is your doctor. Uh, they're very good at putting together broken people. They're very good at treating, um, you know, some of the uh, acute illnesses. They're, I mean, they'll, they might not solve the problem, but they'll get the symptoms out of you in a hurry. But in terms of if you talk to most medical doctors about a healthy lifestyle, they have no clue. All they have is indoctrination by the pharmaceutical industry. The um, it gets me thinking about um, business models, Jim. You know, um, and relating what you've just said to a farming business model. You know, it's uh, I've said to people before, uh, and I'll stick by it. You know, the the current industrial farming business model is a wonderful business model for everyone but the farmer. I, I would disagree with that. Oh, really? But, yeah. Good. We, no, good. Good. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's bad for the farmer because basically it's a feudal system and they become serfs. Mm. But oh. it is bad for the consumer. It's bad for everybody because of the ill health that it creates. And so our government, talking about the U.S., the U.S. government subsidizes the crops that create this ill health because it's the foundation of processed food. Corn, soy, um, wheat, and in and of themselves, none of those crops is fundamentally evil. Uh, it's just the way that the, in, the industrial complex that we have processes those foods and so many people who don't have a clue how to fix a meal from scratch, you know, how to prepare a simple vegetable or something, they eat these processed foods, and it's minimal nutrition and a lot of toxins. Jim, let's jump back to um, uh, grass-fed beef mm -hmm. for a minute because I know that's, um, you know, a lot of your talk this morning was on necessarily grass-fed, but certainly the process of grazing. Um, tell me the difference between your your sort of um, definition or your, your demarcation between grass-fed and pasture-finished. Okay, I actually learned for a long time used the term pasture finished to indicate that it is entirely raised on pasture, but rather than, you know, just you run out of grass and you kill the animals, that's what makes crappy beef. Um, when you actually understand uh, human nutrition and the role of fat in the diet, I want fatty beef. I, I want USDA choice grade beef to get the fat, but I want it to be 100% raised on pasture, completely forage diet, no starch in the diet. Um, so we, we coined the phrase pasture finished to describe an animal raised entirely on pasture, but actually truly finished. Now, there are people in the industry who have kind of bastardized that, and uh, they talk about pasture finished, but what they really mean is what we used to would have described as a grain on grass problem program. Mm. So the animals are out on pasture, but they're getting an increasing amount of grain supplementation out on that pasture. 
until they're actually almost on full feed, uh, but they're standing out on a pasture. And some people are calling that, you know, pasture finished. And yeah, since we do not have an official label of what that the terminology means, there's a lot of confusion in the area. So I, I've gone back to actually using um, grass-fed as the terminology, even though I think there's actually a lot of pretty low-quality beef around that is grass-fed, and it's because um, they are not trying to get the animals to a target quality-grade finish point. It's still, uh, oh, it's the end of the year's coming, we're running out of grass, let's butcher these cattle whether they're ready or not. And that just does not create a quality product. Jim, a lot of our listeners are um, uh, not farmers, and but they are interested in in food. And you know, we we uh, we'd like to think that um, uh, non meat eating people would, would listen to this as well, and and mm-hmm. get to know more about food and farming, and the importance of, I guess, what farmers are doing for um, human health and regenerative farms for human health and 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 global health. Can you give us a, a, a sort of a simple? Um, explanation of the difference between a grass-fed um, animal uh, nutritionally and a grain-fed uh, and, a, and a grain-fed yeah okay um, the things that we most commonly uh, talk about are would be uh, a fat known as conjugated linoleic acid CLA and CLA has been shown in numerous research studies to have um, healing effects for cancer paste patients, preventive, if you have enough of it in your diet, uh, really reduces the risk of uh, several different types of cancer. Um, Then there's the omega-3, omega-6 fatty acids. Um, We know that omega-6 fatty acids at higher levels are uh, unhealthy, uh, they are the, the fats that can lead to, you know, various um, uh, metabolic issues. The, veg- the hydrogenated vegetable oils, corn oil, uh, soybean oil, those sort of things tend to be quite high in omega-6s, very low in omega-3s. Ideally, you want about a one-to-one ratio. If you're consuming fat, uh, equal parts of omega-3 and omega-6. If you're, you know, higher on the omega-3 side, nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, A lot of uh, grain-fed beef will have 20 to 1, 30 to 1 omega-6 ratio. So they're very dominant in the omega-6, and that's because the animal's eating starch. And the rumen um, is not really designed to process starch like that, and so the product comes out omega-6. a lot of grass-fed beef will have, you know, a, a near-perfect balance. If it's 100%, never eaten grain in its life, it'll come out very close to that optimal ratio of omega-3, omega-6. <clears throat> then there's some specific um, amino acids that are um, higher or in better ratios with grass-fed um, than what it is in grain-fed. Now, the interesting thing is... Um, all of those fat compounds I'm talking about are contained in the fat. Mm. And what's, um, you know, kind of confusing is some grass-fed producers will advertise their meat as being lower in saturated fat, you only half the total fat, 
um, and they'll really push the low-fat content of it on one paragraph in their promotional material, and then in the next paragraph, they will be talking about, oh, high omega-3, high CLA. Well, if you don't have fat in the meat, you're not going to have those compounds. Mm. And if you do the comparison of uh, a grain-fed beef to a grass-fed beef, where the grain-fed is actually, we'll say, USDA high-choice grade, and the grass-fed is select grade, which is low-fat, there'll actually be more omega-3, more CLA in the grain-fed beef because it just has more fat. So that that is a real contention with me is you can't, as a grass-fed producer, you can't claim both of these things mm. because uh, they can't exist in the, that animal. Uh, and more and more um, uh, grass-fed producers are actually sending off meat samples to get them analyzed at a lab so that they actually have the data of what their product is. But the majority of them don't. Jim, there was talk today um, uh, often about the use of animals in the landscape and what they can do. And I think uh, in the you know the debate that seems to be raging about people who eat meat and people who don't and people who support the producing of meat and so on, you know, I think there's some, a lot of informa- misinformation about um, the the role that, that that ruminants have in uh, a the management of, mm-hmm. of, of of rangelands and grasslands, but also how they're contributing to actually uh, helping um, improve the health of the planet. Mm-hmm. Essentially, could you talk us through that sort of yeah. maybe maybe mm-hmm. maybe dispel a few myths? Okay, so if, if uh, ruminant livestock, uh, cattle, sheep, goats, bison. If they spend their entire life out grazing in well-managed pastures, um, there it, the pasture itself is a net sink for carbon, including methane. Um, the whole idea that uh, you know beef cattle are destroying the environment is tied only to the feedlot phase of it. Um, and if you have a feedlot, uh, there will be methane lost to the atmosphere from that feedlot. But if the animals are out on a healthy pasture, um, there's a type of bacteria that would be called methanotropes. So these are bacteria that derive energy from the use of methane. And in a healthy pasture, the methanotropes out there have the capacity to you know, capture and utilize more methane then the cows grazing on top of that land can generate. So it's uh, the, the methane thing is a real red herring um, with grazing cattle. Feedlots, it's a problem. CAFO pigs, CAFO chickens, it's a problem. And uh, so uh, I, I would tell the, the anti-meat crowd, and I do, um, is it's the production model that is the problem. It is not ruminant animals in and of themselves. I mean, if, if you look at, um, you know, pre-industrial agriculture, um, there were more ruminant wildlife in the world than there are domestic ruminants now. And so if ruminant animals eating grass are a problem, we should have had all of these... Um, 
uh, global warming issues, whatever else, you know, happening for the last thousands of years. It's the production model that's the issue, not the animal in and of itself. And if we could move the whole world back to um, completely pasture-based beef production, lamb production, then uh, the more meat that people ate, the greater service they'd been be doing to the environment. Um, and Jim, it's not so. I'm stealing from um, I think Diana Rogers. It's not the cow, it's the how. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Are you you know Diana? Are you um, over there? You, you know, <laughs> sustainable I, dish. Uh, I cannot remember if I've ever actually met her in person or not. There's, uh, you know, especially with the. YouTube generation and all that. There's, there's, I hope we don't run out of power on that one, did you? There, there's people that uh, you think, oh, yeah, I've met them. And then you realize, no, I really haven't met them. I've just watched seven of their YouTubes. Uh, so like I, you've, you've, you know them you yeah, know her vicariously. I, yeah, I do. I'm familiar with her work. Yeah. yeah. She's doing fantastic thing mm-hmm. and, and raising money to complete her doco, um, Sacred Cow. Jim, let's jump to, um, to grazing. What are. Um, what do you think are the the most the most powerful tool in our grazing toolkit? All right, it, it's the management of time because as we shrink the time and time and space that animals are on grazing livestock, we increase the stock density. So we can talk about um, we often describe stock density as the most powerful tool in the grazer's toolbox, uh, and the way you create stock density is through the management of time. So they're inextricably linked. Um, what's been missing the last, you know, 50-plus years on the grazing management side is the realization of how important uh, limiting the time that any particular piece of pasture is exposed to grazing livestock. And I, I describe it as during the grazing period, mostly negative things are happening. The... Animals are eating leaves off the plants, so photosynthesis is diminished. Photosynthesis is diminished. Uh, root growth uh, has to contract. If root growth contracts, the direct feeding of uh, carbon flow from the plant to the soil microbes is reduced, and the whole system um, you know, goes into a decline in production. That's why we emphasize uh, leaving uh, ample post-grazing residual because if we can graze the plant you know, just with a single bite, leave active, uh, leave enough leaf area out there to support active photosynthesis, then we don't necessarily have to have the root contract and we don't stop the flow of energy to the plant to, or to the microbes. We've just reset the plant canopy to start another growth cycle to uh, have active photosynthesis again. Um, Jim, you're, um, you prefer to, um, getting back to meat, eating meat, do you prefer lamb or, or beef? Well, you know, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> if I were limited, you know, commandment came from high that said you can only eat one type of meat the rest of your life, it would be lamb. Why? Uh, it tastes so good. It t- <laughs> yeah. Just the rich, Flavors. The, yeah, the richness of flavor. Yeah. And it's uh, interesting. We Literally, Don and I, we have eaten lamb all around the world. And the lambs, and, and, and some places are much, much better than others. The lambs that we get from our neighbor are as good as anything we've eaten in the world. And so we're just happy to keep on doing it. 
just tell us quickly about where you are in the world. You're um, Idaho? Yeah, we're, Idaho. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're in central Idaho, yeah. which is the northern Rocky Mountains. Sure. Um, we live and ranch at elevation, uh, 6,000 6, feet, so about 1,900 meters. And um, uh, we live in a, uh, a high mountain valley. We do have real winter there. Um, it, it literally, it can frost almost any day of the year. Um, like right now we're completely under snow cover. We'll be snow covered for typically three to four months, but it, it's you know, from four inches to a foot. It's not like we get under, you know, bit, three meters of snow, like some places do. Um, but I enjoy winter, so I enjoy being there. Nice having that that little cold break because mm-hmm. in, in some places, a lot of it, um, um, the United States, um, months of snow and meters or snow, feet of snow. I just can't imagine how they how they manage that. Jim, um, we're getting to the end of our interview. Okay. You've, had, you've had a big day. Um, I really appreciate your time. Um, one quick one uh, to finish with. What's what's one of one, what's one or two in your, I again missed your your um your presentation there before about your lessons learned. Um, can you just give us a couple of lessons you've learned um, along the way and <coughs> your regenerative okay. journey you can share with our listeners? Okay, so I've I've already mentioned that time is more important than space. That's an important one. Um, some of the others are um, so obvious, but we don't think about them enough. And one of the really obvious ones is. Water makes grass grow. Um, and so our, all, our focus in grazing management really needs to be how do we get more soil into the water? Excuse me. How do we get more water into the soil? How do we hold it there uh, for future use? Um, another key one is that uh, ranching is really a land-based business. The livestock are just incidental. Yeah. The easiest thing to change about a ranch is the animals on it. Um, the, it is the amount of land that we can control that dictates the size scale of our operation. Most of our costs are land-based costs. So we tend to, you know, I don't worry about what the rate of gain on animals is really. That turns out has, uh, not a great deal to do with profitability. Uh, it's really the output per acre that's determining the, uh, uh, the profitability of the business. Um, Jim, we'll leave it there, I think. I did want to talk to you about grass farming because I think that's such an important paradigm that, that uh, as um, farmers, we think we're beef farmers or we're lamb farmers, but we're really um, graziers. We're, we're, we're grass farmers, aren't we? Exactly. You want yeah. to leave us with any little, little nuggets of gold there? Oh, I will. Grass feeds the grass. Grass feeds the soil. Then grass can feed the livestock. And so if you take the approach that you have to take care of the grass and soil first, you will generally have enough forage and the animals will come along for the ride. If you go in with your focus being just got to feed the cows, got to feed the cows, you will run out of grass. I love the expression, I think Terry McCosker, I'm not sure if he coined it, but he certainly might have been a Bud, Bud Williams um, expression, you know, learn to love your, your grass more than your cattle. Mm-hmm. Love it. Jim, I've so enjoyed our little chat. It's the end of the day. There seems to be um, beers happening on the veranda out there, so I think that's probably as good a time to finish as, right. as any. We could all do with one of them. 
Thanks so much for your time, Jim, and, and uh, enjoy the rest of your time here in Australia. All right, you're and welcome. I, and I hope to see you back. Okay. All right, I hope to come back. We'll do a part two. All right, thanks, Charlie. Appreciate Charlie, it. Jim. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Fascinating chat with Jim. Um, just so many angles that, that Jim can take us on, whether it be regenerative agriculture or human health or soil health, or I know they're all related, but uh, Jim does a fantastic job of pulling them all together and, and um, presenting them in some very digestible little snacks, little portions there. Uh, and, and I love some of his, his quotes are classic. Um, our next um, episode is with Lorraine Gordon. Lorraine is the founder of the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance there, um, situated at the Southern Cross University of Lismore, up, up in the Northern Rivers. Um, she uh, She's a, a real dynamo. Loved catching up with Lorraine. Um, again, at the My Grazing um, field day up there at Ebor uh, in February, we talk about her early early years and, and how she got to be managing a large property up there, her connection with regenerative agriculture and her journey, of course, how she's uh, really paved the way for not just women in ag- agriculture, but just uh, just regenerative ag, especially in the in sort of government space. I could bang on for hours about Lorraine. But, um, make sure you tune in to the next episode and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, share amongst your friends, comment as you see fit. You know, we're really keen to get this information out there and the, the more comments, the more subscriptions and so on um, to this particular podcast, the more uh, people will hear about it and, um, you know, be able to share that on and, and let's uh, let's get this movement going. Uh, I trust you enjoy um, the, uh, the next episode and uh, speak with you soon. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. And as the recipient of the Bob Hawke Landcare Award, Charlie would like to thank Landcare Australia for their support in the creation of this first series of The Regenerative Journey.